Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and Science Fiction, where writers give us the inside scoop about their books, the business of writing, and whatever else they feel like talking about. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Are You Dead or Just Not Feeling So Great edition. Today, we are in studio with Nino Cipri to talk about Homesick, their collection of fascinating short stories about ghosts, alien seed pods, Difficult Mothers, and Falling in Love. Homesick won the Dezank Short Fiction Collection Prize. Nino is a graduate of the Clarion Writers Workshop and earned their MFA in fiction from the University of Kansas last year, the same year that Homesick was published. And I am delighted to have the chance to meet and talk to the writer who created such a fascinating, creepy, and satisfying collection of stories. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell me the backstory to this collection. How did these stories come together as a book? The fiction in this collection is kind of like breadth of my work that has my very first published short story in there, um, which is actually the first story. It's called A Silly Love Story. And it also has, um, at the time, like the most recent story that I was working on, which is the last story in there because I like I like chronology, I guess, um, which is a novella that's called Before We Disperse Like Star Stuff. And I, so this is sort of embarrassing to admit, I wasn't really planning on writing a science fiction collection or a short story collection for probably like, I don't know, another decade. I've only been around for, you know, since like 2012 or so. And I don't, I don't have the kind of output that a lot of other short story writers do. You know, I was maybe publishing like one or two stories a year. And then I saw the Design short story contest and I was like, you know what? Why not? Shoot my shot. I have enough stories and I feel like, you know, in rereading a lot of my work, I saw that there was this emergent theme um, that all kind of centered on this idea of home. Like, how do we relate to home? What is it to us? Uh, What is it not? Where do we find it? And then also, so much of my work is about, you know, queer and trans people. And I feel like that gives it a different layer. For me personally, like, as a trans person, I'm always thinking about, like, what does home mean when I literally don't feel at home in my body or didn't for a long time? I do now. And like, what does home mean for a lot of trans people and a lot of queer people when like home is not a safe place for us? So I felt like there's a really interesting tension in a lot of these stories that we're looking at thinking about home. And so that's I just put the collection together. I gave it the name Homesick because I feel like that just kind of articulated that tension pretty well. And then I sent it off with zero thought that it would ever win a contest what like completely just took me by surprise um i was like you know maybe if i'm lucky i'll get like a honorable mention and it'll look good on a cv someday but yeah they chose it and i was shocked (laughs) um i was sitting in my office and literally had to like call my girlfriend (laughs) Uh, and just be like, I got this email and I don't know what to do. And she's like, well, call them back, call them back. And then I did. And it was it was Michelle at Desnike and they wanted to publish the collection. And that's what the prize comes with then. It becomes it became your first book, first published. It book. did. Yeah. 
Structurally, the stories are all different. You've got omniscient third-person narrators, a story built on letters, or maybe it's diary entries, one that's structured as a multiple-choice quiz, one that's a series of recordings, and then the novella at the end is told in three parts from the perspectives of the three main characters. What does that say about you as a writer, and how do you know when you found the right format to tell a particular story? It can take me years to find the right format for a story. I A lot of the stories in that collection actually, you know, were just kind of simmering in my brain for like anywhere from like two to three to four years. It also, I think, comes from my background as a writer. I didn't start out writing fiction. I think I wrote pretty much everything first, everything else first, before I started writing fiction. I started out doing uh, screenplay writing and then playwriting, poetry, essays, and then started getting serious about writing fiction. So some of those stories are literally just like they started out in a completely different genre and I translated them into fiction because at this point that's kind of what I know how to do. Dead Air actually did start as a radio play. That was my original thought was I was going to do this radio play about these two women, one of whom is doing an ethnography of the people that she's having one night stands with. And I thought that was a really interesting idea for like a a fictional radio play. And then I was in grad school and I needed to just turn in short stories once or twice a month, um, depending on how many workshops I was taking. So I just had to just put all of my ideas out into like down onto paper. And so a lot of these stories, sometimes it's just like me experimenting, me challenging myself. Super Little Dead Girls, which is the story as a personality quiz, I just didn't have a good plot for what I thought was a really fun premise. And so just kind of thinking like, okay, well, how can I tell a story without a plot? I don't really have one. Um, Not one that would actually like make a decent short story. Oh, well, I can just sort of like just focus in on the characters instead and lean all the way into that. And a personality quiz just seemed like the best way to do that. A lot of it is just trial and error. I'll start writing something one way and then go back and like, oh, man, this sucks. I don't like this. What's wrong? And then I'll just try something else completely different and then keep going at that until something till something sticks, basically. You mentioned Dead Air, which is the what you said initially started as perhaps a radio play. It was a radio play, yeah. And it's constructed as what sounds like a transcription recording of a woman interviewing someone who she initially sounded like maybe had a one-night stand with as part of her art project slash ethnography, sociology. you know, act of just complete narcissism, for sure. Right. That's part of it, too. Right. So all the people she slept with. But this particular person, she starts to have a thing for, so she continues to interview her. And that's the one story that struck me as really the scariest. Mm. I've heard that from... It's the most straightforward horror. And it comes from, like, a long legacy of, like found footage horror. I definitely had found footage horror in mind when I was writing that and trying to see if there was a way for me to translate all of the the terror of a found foot, like a really solid found footage film into prose. I feel like I accomplished that pretty well. The greatest thing about found footage is like all of the things that you just barely see. And a lot of the time, you n- it never shows you the monster up close and like You never get like a full, clear view of the monster in a lot of found footage, which is really great when you're writing. You're like, I don't want to actually have to describe what this person is seeing. Oh, okay. well, I'll just write it all audio transcriptions and uh, let the reader do that work instead of me. Well, I think it was very effective. 
And what's interesting as a counterpoint, I think, your other stories, which have ghosts or poltergeists or wraiths, the characters, the other characters in the story are not really astonished by the paranormal. It's sort of part of the context of how they live. For instance, in a silly love story, a poltergeist is haunting the main character, Jeremy's closet, and he's curious about the poltergeist, and he's concerned really about its well-being, like what's on its mind. He doesn't really mind that it's unraveling his clothes or turning things inside out, because most of Jeremy's attention is on Marion, a person he's falling in love with. And similarly, in Presque Vu, if I said that correctly, there's a character named Clay who's a driver for, I suppose it's like an Uber-like company, mm-hmm. in a town that's plagued by hauntings and wraiths. But again, it's really a romance, or the beginnings of one, that seems to hold the story's emotional center. I want to know about your interest in ghosts and the paranormal and the role that these elements play in your stories, which except for dead air, is not the traditional horror role. Mm -hmm. It's something else. The horror genre has been a part of my life for, I mean, probably since I was a kid and, like, should not have been watching horror movies. (laughs) It's brought me, honestly, like, a lot of joy. Um, It's the genre that definitely brought me to other kinds of speculative fiction. Um, I was a horror reader and I guess a horror writer before I was really anything else. But I do also think that, like, I love all of these elements, but I don't always necessarily want to write a story that is supposed to scare people. And I think maybe that reflects, like, the fact that I've just sort of, like, incorporated my love for this genre, like, into so much of my life without actually, like, thinking, I don't necessarily think about it as, like, scary like oh there's a ghost I mean that's fine and also I think it's just because like I find ghosts fascinating I find like the idea of being haunted really really interesting but I don't necessarily always find it like as a source of fear at least in my own life a lot of the things that I'm afraid of are things like I'm really afraid of like love generally like that has honestly been like a much more clear and like deep sense of like or deep source of pain and like suffering in my life yeah, so I just find like that interplay very interesting. And I'm all, I'm I am a sucker for a love story. I fought it for a long time and I think like that's why a lot of my stories are just kind of like, well sure, there's a love story, but also there's ghosts and let's talk about the ghosts. But I love I love a love story. I do. Well, and the, Did that answer your question? I almost forgot what the question was. I think so. <laughs> okay. Well, and the role that the paranormal plays in the story. Mm. Okay. So the role that the paranormal plays in the story. I don't have as quite a good grasp on, like, what is fantasy, what is science fiction, what is real versus, like, what is unreal or surreal for a lot of reasons. Like, I just sort of, like, grew up feeling, like, loving fiction so much that I didn't always necessarily have a very good grasp on, like, this is fiction and this is definitely reality. And those are, like, the border between those are not to be crossed. And I really love that in a lot of paranormal fiction, a lot of fabulism, like, that the strange is just sort of, like, a part of the landscape. It's not, like, the source of weirdness in the story. It's just it's just there. The characters have gotten used to it, like, the way that we get used to everything. I mean, there is disquiet in a lot of your stories. The characters do seem a little uncomfortable with the state of their lives at the moment, whether it's because they're maybe falling in love and they don't Mm -hmm. quite know how to express it or make that connection, or 
they are going through a transition in their life. Like in the story, she hides sometimes Mm. where a daughter has brought her mother to a skilled nursing facility or a nursing home because she's suffering from dementia. She's going through a transition, and it's as if the outside world, whether it's paranormal or in the case of she hides sometimes, the house is literally disappearing. It's reflecting the internal disquiet, it seems like. I really like it when stories don't necessarily distinguish between, like, what's inside versus outside, if that makes sense. Like, I like allegories. Like, I love I love stories that have, like, a really clear message. Like, you know, this is a story about this is what's happening in the world of the story, but this is also what the story is about. But for me, when I'm writing, I'm much more interested in being able to just, like, merge those or blur the lines, at least. So with She Hides Sometimes, the house you can definitely read it as like this is a story that's about like the disintegration of somebody's home in a very large metaphorical way for me at the very end of that story I wanted to kind of twist it so it's like oh was this a metaphor because the character gets some sort of resolution out of this relationship with her mother Um, she's able to get some closure out of that and then she returns to the house but there's no resolution there and if there is a resolution it's weird it's uh, disquieting and it's unsatisfying so I liked being able to kind of like go in and out of that space so do you believe in ghosts I don't not believe in ghosts. (laughs) I have never seen a ghost. I have definitely been in spaces that were very strange and very disquieting. And I love the idea of hauntings and being haunted. I don't necessarily think it's just like there is a spectral entity that's like creeping around in a place that's like, you know, moving my coffee cup or whatever. But I do sometimes think that like you can step into a space and feel the weight of its history and feel the people that have been there before and feel the relationships and like the events there's some sort of resonance that happens I don't think it's a ghost necessarily when I just like I'm thinking of like a abandoned paper factory that was in my old neighborhood when I was a kid that I used to break into regularly but just like being able to like go in there and know that like oh this was a place where people literally went to work every day that now just exists on my neighbor's lawn and she hates it and she wants the town to tear it down because we keep getting in there and it's inevitable one of us is going to get tetanus or something but yeah so I don't necessarily believe in ghosts but I don't not believe in ghosts fair okay (laughs) leave it a little uncertain just as it is in your stories I think Although in your stories, actually, it feels like there really are ghosts oh, wandering yeah. around. In my in my stories, there are ghosts, and they are wandering around, and they're just sitting at the bus stop and like bleeding purple light or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, as the as uh, Clay, the Uber like driver, mm-hmm. notes, it, that's a very that is another creepy story. Not so much because the wraiths are scary, but the humans mm-hmm. are actually scary because there's a kind of madness that seems to be infecting the town where people have not taken off their Halloween costumes for two weeks, and they're being cruel to the wraiths who just seem to be wandering sadly around town but not causing harm, and people are unwinding their creepy fabric wrappings. And Yeah, so that's a story that I initially... I tried to write a version of that story back in, like, I want to say 2012, and finished it. It couldn't get published. I didn't... Like, something was wrong with it, and I didn't know what... It actually wasn't a speculative story the first time I wrote it. And so I started rewriting it as a speculative story. Couldn't figure out what the story was really about. And then literally, I think like, well, the 2016 election happened. And I was 
living in Kansas at the time. I was out actually for the first time in my life, like completely out to everybody I knew as being queer, as being trans. Uh, You know, I was in the process of getting my name changed. I was in the process of trying to have top surgery. And then all of a sudden the 2016 election happens. And it, you know, I think like most queer and trans people have the same story. It just like completely knocked me down for a while. It was also really weird because I was teaching a bunch of like 18 year olds, most of whom had like no context for what had just happened and a fair number of whom like were really conservative as well. It was it was a weird time. So that story was the only place I could really shove all of the like bubbling anxiety and like fear for the future that I had. I didn't really know any other way to like express it. And I still think there's something very I mean, the story is sort of inarticulate in a lot of ways, like a lot of the things that people are like really afraid of, you don't really understand. You don't get a clear picture of what's going on at any point. And I had no clear picture of what was going to happen. I think that was really a story that only could have come out of the 2016 election for me. It helped me make sense of where I was and what I was feeling and what I was afraid of more than anything else. It's interesting. I wonder how much art has come out of the 2016 election, I feel like a number of writers I've spoken with have you know, referenced that as something that has inspired them, informed their work. I mean, Craig DeLuey's book, Our War. I don't know if I've heard of this. Yeah. Is mean, it a I fiction interviewed him. It's fiction. Yeah. Okay. Our War is about a literal revolution that's mm-hmm. based on the idea of a president who is impeached but refuses to leave. Mm. And some mm-hmm. of it was prescient because he had to write it before the actual impeachment, which, in fact, the trial is happening right now as I we know. speak. <laughs> but that's very literally inspired by recent politics. Mm. And your writing has been emotionally, you know, there's an emotional inspiration rather than a literal one. Mm-hmm. A lot of what I, I feel like a lot of my writing process is me trying to work through things. And it's not necessarily like, oh, I'm trying to work through my gender, although I've done that. It's pretty much the first story in that book. It's not just I'm trying to work through like fears or anything like that. A lot of times it's like I want to, I'm interested in this idea and I want an excuse to think about it um, and to write about it and to research it and then put down like how I feel about it at this moment onto paper or onto my laptop, I guess. For me, a lot of my writing process is a way of like, yeah, working through these kinds of things. So yeah, Prescavu definitely was like me working through like a lot of the sort of like nameless, nebulous fears that I was going through and anxiety. I feel like the novella in the piece before we disperse like star stuff is like me working through a lot of my feelings about like academia. (laughs) Well, I want to talk a little bit about the last story. But before we do that, since you mentioned uh, a silly little love story just now saying you're working through your own identity a little bit in Mm -hmm. that story, one thing that did strike me is that there is the character Marion. I mean, there are a lot of queer and non-binary people, I think, in your stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's the character Marion, and they are, quote from the story, a woman sometimes and a man at others, switching out genders on a daily, sometimes hourly basis. And then I saw on your website, in your FAQ, a description mm. that sounded somewhat similar. Mm-hmm. As I think you were they're probably yourself. from similar time periods as well. So, yeah, so I'm non binary. Sorry, did you have more to this question? No, I was just going to read what, how you described yourself uh, as saying. It. We'll see if it's still true. I wrote that back in like 2014, probably. 
Well, non-binary, you, you wrote on your website, is a nice word for folks like myself that fall outside or shift between male and female identities and appearances. Non-binary complements exploration and experimentation and has a dash of defiance. I can be a little of column A, a little of column B, and sometimes I can just wander off the page entirely. I think this is still this still rings true for me. I do want to point out that it's not like a generalized definition of non-binaryness, but it is my own. It's like basically me trying to articulate like what it means to me. Um, and other non-binary people will definitely have a very different reading or understanding of what their gender is and what their gender means and what it, it means to be non-binary. But yeah, I think this still rings true for me. And is Marion a stand-in for you or someone? No. <laughs> How dare you? I wouldn't call Marion a stand-in for me. I don't think I ever wanted to lean into like masculinity or femininity in the same ways that that character does, for sure. But it was, the story itself was like me trying to kind of like, come to terms with like what does it mean like what like what are the feelings that I'm having like what why do I keep having a crisis over what gender I am and at that point oh I wrote that in like 2011 I think I'd been like trying to figure out am I a man am I a woman like what does this mean like why do I feel this way probably since about like 2004 or 2005 and my at some point a friend of mine came to me and was like listen you don't actually have to be one or the other it's fine and I was like oh oh cool that's great oh well that kind of solves that it didn't solve that but it gave me a name to kind of like put on my experience and my feelings and then it did sort of like it was like kind of like one step and like oh okay like I get to choose who I am I get to choose like what parts of this whole thing about gender I want to actually deal with. So for me, I was like, okay, well, do I want to stay like with the name that my birth, my parents gave me when I was born? No, I'm going to ditch that. Do I still want to paint my nails? Yeah, actually, that's kind of fun. I don't do it very often. But do I want long hair? Mm, no. Do I want to change what it says on like my birth certificate? Nah, I'm not going to bother with that. So it's been a, it's been like, I think with that story, especially like what I do still hold on to from that is like I get to pick and choose what I want and what I get to do. So, yeah, sometimes I I get to do column A, I get to do column B, I get to be, you know, none of the above or all of the above as well. Sounds wonderfully liberating. It was real fun. It's been a good time. I mean, it's mostly been a good time. It's also been a lot of like correcting people. Like, like yes, at the outset, I, although I knew they was your preferred pronoun, I slipped up and did not use that. So I yes, mean, I'm glad it happens all the time. Like I was, you know, it's just kind of like a thing that I like. I know, like going, especially meeting new people, like unless they're also trans, unless they're also non-binary, like chances are they're going to screw up. My friends still screw up. My mom still screws up. Like, even though my mom has been, like, extremely, like, wonderfully supportive through this whole process, she still messes up. I still mess up. One time I actually called, like, I called another friend of mine who's also trans by my name, which was really weird. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Mistakes call me out. by my name. Call you. Call, call me you by, by my name. It call was, you by my except, name. Except like, right, no, yeah. that was not the agreement we had. And he just looked at me like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> it takes practice. You it know, does to get yeah. the mind working. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think we're also kind of working against. Um, I mean, for almost all of us, like decades of being told, like, "Oh, that is incorrect." 
anybody who had to go through like fifth grade grammar classes like has been told like oh no you cannot use I put this in that damn story. <laughs> like, you know, the singular they is grammatically incorrect. And at the time when I first wrote and published that, like, that was the prevailing opinion. Language shifts. It takes everybody some time to sometimes catch up to that shift, though. Yeah, no, a number of uh, style books have changed. Yeah, I'm so happy to see that, too. So, like, when I was in school and when I was teaching, I was teaching, you know, English classes. I was teaching composition. And for the most part, I was telling my students, like, hey, just so you know, like, use of the singular they, especially if you don't know the gender of the person you're talking about, or if it's just, like, a unknown, like, non-act, like, if it's not an individual person that you're thinking of, it's sort of a general placeholder it's perfectly acceptable for me to if you use they they are they you know they are they were whatever but I had to like fight with other English teachers and with other language teachers like you know teenage like our students are already doing this like they just kind of think like it's natural to them but I also did have to warn some of my students like some of your teachers are going to make you correct this to he she he slash she or whatever and they're wrong but they'll retire eventually so don't worry about it and was it hard? You mentioned being in Kansas at the time that you were transitioning and some of the students were conservative. I mean, did that play out in your life in some way? I went through like most of the like kind of, um, I don't, I can't really like, I'm trying to think of a way to articulate this. So like most of the big steps in a person's transition, I went through while living in Kansas. The community there I actually found to be like wonderful and very welcoming. Lawrence, Kansas, which is where I was living, where the University of Kansas is, has a really high population of like uh, queer and trans people. And it's a small town. So like there's not really like like I mean, it's a it's a pretty tight knit community. Like you don't like I mean there's definitely clicks in it but for the most part like I I actually knew a lot more trans people in Kansas than I did when I was living in Chicago for example like I knew trans people in Chicago for sure just not as many um and I think it's just because it was a big city with like a really sprawling queer scene there was definitely some like weirdness that happened like with the bureaucracy that was there in terms of changing my name in terms of uh I had I had top surgery. I had a double mastectomy while I was there and had to like immediately go back to teaching uh, like four or five weeks after that happened. Wow. But for the most part, like I didn't get misgendered or like uh, experience a lot of discrimination in Kansas, like more than I have in like New York or Vermont, to be perfectly honest. And I think part of that is, like, the specific place in Kansas that I was. Kansas is not a monolith. <laughs> right. There's a lot of different people and communities and cultures within it. And also the fact that, like, transphobia and homophobia are everywhere. Like, including on, like, super liberal spaces in, like, New York, Vermont, uh, the Pacific Northwest, where I've also lived, Chicago. It's good to be reminded that our pictures of places are not always so well-informed and that it comes mm-hmm. down to individual people and that... A lot of people tend to be pretty decent, mm-hmm. even if institutions yeah. are slower or not as decent. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's plenty of individuals who aren't decent, too. But. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, it's funny to come into to come back to New York and just be like, oh, yeah, no, I just came from Kansas. And people are like, really? Kansas? What's that like? It's like, I mean, it's pretty flat. It's the Midwest. 
doesn't have good food. Well, it had a couple of good food places. <laughs> but other than that, wasn't a whole lot different than like a lot of other places that I've lived. So let me uh, ask you about the last story, okay. which you had uh, referenced and you had mm-hmm. said, you know, it was partly your commentary on academia. A little bit. <laughs> so the story is about the relationship between three people, all of whom share credit for finding and saving from destruction the bones of an ancient, sentient, weasel-like creature. And I love the idea of a non-human prehistoric creature that was making tools and developing a culture and developing a writing system and was seemed like it was basically on the road to civilization. Tell me about this idea for these sentient weasels. I mean, the story focuses on the characters, but I kind of got fell in love with these weasels who are really... I also fell in love with those weasels. <laughs> I, mean, I want to know more about them, but they were sort of peripheral to the story, partly because, like anything so ancient about which we know so little, they no one we don't really know that much. Yeah. But what do they mean to you? So I think what these weasels mean to me, and I just, I love the fact that I just got to say that sentence. I think a lot of that is just the fact of, hmm, I'm going to have to think about this. So part of my thought process in creating this uh, intelligent, sapient species here on Earth is the idea that, like, we as humans don't understand and automatically dismiss forms of intelligence that we don't recognize. And we've done that to other humans throughout history. And we still do that with animals, for sure. I think I was probably at least partly inspired by a Ted Chiang story that I cannot remember the name of off of the top of my head. It's his parrot story. (laughs) Um, It's a story that takes place, well, it doesn't really take place anywhere, but it's narrated by a species of parrot that is on the verge of extinction. And it's just a sort of like meditation on the fact that humanity is constantly looking for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe and ignoring and destroying intelligent life that is here on Earth. So I was interested in that, but I didn't want it to be so sad as that story. That story still moves me to tears. So I did love this idea of just like, okay, there was a species of animal that was that had intelligence that we can recognize. What does that look like for, you know, in the world of the story? They use tools. They had a written language. If I was going to rewrite this, I probably would have given them art instead of written language, just after having done like more research about it. But um, so it was that it was the idea of just like I was really interested in this possibility of having like, you know, what is it called? Convergent evolution of different kinds of intelligence um, on different continents. That's something that you see in biology, you know, fairly frequently. Like, I don't remember exactly the species, but like there are like a ton of different species that all have the same basic crab shape that aren't closely related that just kind of came into the same shape, the same configuration of limbs, uh, just sort of independently, like through just like it worked out, like that they evolved like the same kind of uh, body shape that it just made sense in all of these different environments. So I was thinking about like, okay, so what if, you know, roughly at the same time that like early hominid species were evolving, there was also this like completely divergent species that was evolving the same kind of intelligence on a different continent, never met, and it died out. I sometimes wonder like what 
the world would be like if there were other human species in the world, if that makes sense. Like if the Neanderthals hadn't died out or, you know, were potentially like hybridized with Cro-Magnon species. I don't know. I didn't like bring all my research notes. So some of this is probably wrong. So that's like one of the things it meant to me for sure. And so let me ask you about the other parts of the story, Mm -hmm. because that's probably the part that goes into more of your feelings about academia. Essentially what happens is, and I may be getting it wrong or you, you can characterize it yourself, but what came out to me was that one of the protagonists took more of the credit or at least got more of the fame than the other two and ended up writing a book that became very popular. And then the Smithsonian is interested in doing a documentary or TV show about it. And it even involves recreating the weasels, bringing them to life by having someone in a green suit so they can do some kind of CGI. And so the weasel-like character apparently is following them around. And what's interesting to me is not only there's this person who has taken this very academic and esoteric subject and popularized it, but he brings in the other two people and sort of tries to make it up to them that he left them out. But they're all kind of willingly going along with this kind of popularization of this this thing where there's going to be this cartoony CGI weasel. and But they're all just kind of laughing about it, going, well, whatever, this is what's happening. And I was sort of surprised. I thought they might push back and go, absolutely not. This is demeaning or this is not scientific enough. But it was interesting that they didn't. They were more relaxed about it and they were you were very focused on their own personal interactions and relationships. Yeah. Every so often I do wonder if I should have made this into a novel instead of a novella because I feel like I, I would have gotten more into stuff like that. So this story is inspired by the absolute worst science documentary that I've ever watched. It's called Titanoboa. And it's about a few scientists that co-discovered... Um, as far as we know, the largest species of snake that has ever existed. And it's, I want to say, like, they found it somewhere in, like, a, in Brazil at this site that was literally being destroyed by mining companies. But the documentary is not about that. It's about these two scientists. And there's this, like, weird plot that, like, the production company, which is also the Smithsonian. You can watch this on the Smithsonian channel. It's amazing. They, you know, like make them do all these like terribly goofy things. Like they make them go to the Florida Everglades and like they have this scientist guy who looks like he does not go out of his lab very often. Like he does not work in the field very much. They make him like wander around the Florida Everglades and like try and catch, a, I think like an escaped python with a guy who's like, that's his job. And it gets, and then he gets pooped on by the python too. It's hilarious. They also like send this a whole group of people out to like his massive wetlands in South America, with this guy whose job is literally to walk around these wetlands barefoot, hoping he steps on an anaconda. Yeah, no, this is all real. I'm not making any of this up. To find the anaconda? Yeah, to find the anaconda. I mean, I don't know if he's doing population surveys out there, what kind of study he's doing. You don't really get much information. You just like suddenly you're in South America with this guy and his long-suffering grad students who are all just like, oh my God. (laughs) Well, it was. In your story, it's almost like they're looking for the reality show drama of conflict over the science. Like that's foregrounded. The science is... It's absolute. And that is mostly cribbed from that documentary because I think it's so funny. And like you see these scientists just being like, 
I don't know if like this was the deal that they had to make with the Smithsonian uh, in order to get like research funding, which says some really sad things about the state of like publicly funded science in the in this country, or if they were just like, you know, I I just want people to know about this like discovery that I like I made with this team that it's so important that I guess this is the best way to disseminate this information to the public is by making this terrible, terrible documentary. And it's so funny. Uh, So I wanted to like get some of that ridiculousness and I wanted to get some of that humor and I wanted to like, you know, I wanted to have sort of like a kind of like lighthearted story that was still kind of like grounded in some very serious questions um, and ideas that like I think are very meaningful and like things that we really should be thinking about and wondering about and not knowing if, you know, we're making the right choices or how to make the right choices. So love is an important theme in your stories. And absolutely. Yeah. You've spoken about your own personal, like how that's scarier than a ghost sometimes. So can you talk a little bit about how love and it's both the romantic sexual kind and there's also the love between a child and their mother in particular, actually, because there's a couple stories that have mothers who are important. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And who leave in different mm-hmm. ways. One, like the story we talked about, the suffering from dementia and mm-hmm. leaving in that sense, but another who literally does leave. Does leave, yeah. Those are themes of your stories, the connection, you know, the loving connection, whether it is sexual or it's familial. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about your, your interest in writing about that? Yeah. So I did say this, I am a sucker for a love story. For me, I think the... Hmm, As a reader, what I'm most interested in is probably relationships um, and the ways that characters interact. That's very, it's very crunchy for me. A friend of mine told me that when he was describing, well, writing sex scenes, actually, that... He likes crunchy, he or she likes, or they, likes crunchy (laughs) love scenes? Well, no, it's just like, it's sort of like what, you know, it's not like, it's it's complex. It has... um, like a lot to that attracts him like you know there's so much to get into with a sex scene for me there's so much to get into with like a relationship which is you know like similar with a sex scene where I'm always interested in like the different dynamics that happen between two characters in fiction it's what draws me to stories um is not so much necessarily about like a single protagonist or like a single main character like kind of uh, going through something, but like seeing how two people or three people or a family or a team or, you know, you and like your five best friends and the guy that you slept with at one time, like (laughs) what those people can accomplish um, or what they can work through. So yeah, relationships are like at the heart of almost all of my stories. And like I said, yeah, I do love a love story. I love stories about like people getting together. I am kind of a diehard romantic at heart. If I wasn't writing science fiction, I would probably be writing romance just because it's like extremely satisfying and fun to read and write. But I think I'm also like a little bit too like, I'm a little too dark. <laughs> like I like I like things that are like slightly too edgy to really fall into the romance genre. Or that's what I like to write. I still love reading romance. You like to write about the beginnings of relationships, at least in the I stories know. and and the ends, the departures yeah. too. Well, the middles of relationships, there there's not a lot of like there's not as much like 
dynamic oomph to them you know it's just kind of like oh did you can you get the groceries today sure like if you you know pick up the kids from daycare or whatever like a lot of the time like the middles of relationships are just like people going through things yeah i'm trying to think have i ever written about like just two people who were like yeah we're just together it's fine yeah it's great have i yeah oh, no. we're I together I 30 <laughs> years and everything's going smoothly well they could have conflicts they absolutely issues. can have conflicts um problems. Yeah. And um, like they can have like really interesting and like dynamic conflicts. And I know I've read about them. I just don't think I've ever written about them, which is huh, weird. I'll have to I'll have to I'll have to try that at some point. But yeah, like I am a romantic, but I'm also just sort of really I'm really interested in like the ways that people relate to each other, the ways that they push each other, uh, the conflicts that happen between them. Um, It's very satisfying for me to write like the new book, the book that I have coming out later this month in February, the two main characters are actually a former couple that broke up, I think, four days ago, three or four days ago. And now they have to work through all of their shit um, while also accomplishing, you know, they have to go and track down a missing grandmother that wandered into a wormhole in their home goods store that isn't, but sort of, it's not Ikea, but it's like Ikea. <laughs> so, yeah. And that story is coming out from Tor.com. Is that right? That's Tor.com, yeah. And what's it called? It's called Finna. It's a novella. It's a novella. <laughs> Excellent. So two books in two years. Yeah. Actually, Finno was originally included in Homesick. It was going to be the novella instead of um, Before We Disperse Like Star Stuff or the Space Weasel story, um, which is how I refer to it for, I think, two years. <laughs> because Finna also deals with a lot of the same subjects. Like it very intentionally like thinking about relationships and about home uh the two main characters are queer one of them is non-binary and it's sort of like zooming in and also exploiting this idea of like what is home where is home and who is home but i did that thing you're not supposed to do where i submitted a novella to like two places at the same time it was totally all above board like they allowed it and it was okay but then Dezank accepted the manuscript for the short story collection. I withdrew it from Tor.com. My agent called me and he's like, hey, (laughs) Carl Engelair just called me and wanted to buy your book. Do you think there's a way that we can kind of like finagle this whole thing, like to make it so that you can have two books instead of one? And I was like, um, let me call my publisher. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so Michelle was amenable to replacing the novella, the original novella with something else. And you had Uh, the weasel story in the in your pocket. I did. I had finished a draft of it. And then I was like, okay, you know, I need to I need to like really think about it. Like the first version of that story It was good. It was funny. It was much more sort of like madcap adventure cute stuff. And then like the main feedback I got while workshopping, it was like, this story can dig much deeper into the issues that it's raising. You're sort of just skimming the surface of a lot of them. If you lean into it, if you, you know, settle in and like give it some space and like really let the story just kind of like play out a lot of the like ideas that you're bringing up instead of just like popping over them it's going to be much better. And I was like, cool. I can't do that right now. I'm in grad school. I'm writing a novel. I am like trying to finish my thesis. I'm teaching two classes. I'm like doing all these other things. And then when this happened, I was like, well, okay, I guess I need to get back to work on that. Well, congratulations. Thanks. (laughs) On Homesick and on the forthcoming Finna. Thank you so much. And it has been really, really great talking to you. 
Thank you again for inviting me. This has been really fun. I've been speaking to Nino Cipri about their novel Homesick, published by Zank Books. Have you subscribed yet to this podcast? Good. That's the answer for those who said yes. And what are you waiting for? That's the answer for those who said no. And please check off five stars where it asks for a review. Five stars is like the gift of a little rainbow in the morning sky. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. New Books and Science Fiction is part of the New Books Network. I produce and edit the show, but the network's editor-in-chief and founder is Marshall Poe, and he gets the show online with the help of the network's co-editor, Leanne Wilson. This is Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. Thanks for joining Nino and me today. Be kind to books and people, too. Bye for now. Bye-bye.